listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 164. We're going to have a post-midterm edition for you this time. We're going to round up the results of the election, talk about other labor developments around the country and the world, and go to Wisconsin, where we'll talk about the glorious defeat of Walker and what it means for labor unions across Wisconsin and for the labor movement as a whole. But first, the news. The big news coming out of the midterms was the so-called blue wave that modestly lifted Democrats up to retake the House. Behind those gains was also a powerful grassroots momentum, however, and this extended beyond the candidates that they voted for. As with the 2016 elections, a perhaps more interesting barometer of the public sentiment lay in the ballot initiatives that advanced progressive policies that had proven unachievable through traditional legal and political channels this year. A quick rundown of the progressive referenda that won across the country shows that, as usual, the body politic is well to the left of what's going on in Washington. The initiatives for raising the minimum wage did well, as usual. In Arkansas and Missouri, voters approved significant minimum wage increases to $11 and $12 an hour, respectively. Anaheim voted in a measure that uh, employers who received city subsidies should commit to a higher pay standard starting at $15 next year and gradually increasing from year to year to $18 in 2022. Amazon, are you listening? City subsidies? Voters in Flagstaff, Arizona, meanwhile, voted to protect their citywide minimum wage from an attempt to roll back wages through state legislation that would have preempted higher minimum wages at the local level. According to the National Employment Law Project, in Missouri and Arkansas alone, those minimum wage hikes would reach more than 975,000 people. About two-thirds of the workers impacted would be in Missouri. And among those boosted by the law would be 100,000 working seniors and near retirees aged 55 and over. More than 36,500 working seniors over 65 would also see their wages raised. And that could prove to be a crucial financial boost for people aging out of the workforce and moving on to a fixed income, which is for many unsustainable these days. National Employment Law Project also reported that the midterm victories cap a year of wage hikes nationwide. At the start of the year, it was estimated that there would be 21 citywide raises, 35 state-level raises, impacting 5 million people altogether. We also recently got a legislative deal to bring the state minimum wage to $15 an hour in Massachusetts, joining New York and California. All these little raises are worth keeping an eye on now that there are greater prospects for reform in Washington. Bear in mind that our national minimum wage remains stuck at a pathetic $7.25 an hour, despite what voters across the country are crying out. There were other promising initiatives, including Medicaid expansion by referendum in Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, along with criminal justice reforms that could help vastly expand the electorate in Florida in future years. The additional 1.7 million people with felony convictions uh, who would automatically regain voting rights could prove crucial in this swing state. And as we're seeing in Florida now, every vote really does matter. 
while we're talking midterms, here's a little roundup of what else happened. We'll be digging into the main event in Wisconsin in just a few minutes, but we did want to talk a little bit about the Iron Stash himself, Randy Bryce. Randy Bryce is not heading to Congress, but he did succeed in his biggest challenge, which was making a credible race for what used to be Paul Ryan's seat. Ryan decided not to run for re-election, choosing to stay home to spend more time with what's sure to be a lucrative lobbying career after Bryce entered the race and bluntly challenged Ryan's record. Randy Bryce got 42% of the vote in a race that Ryan won by 35 points last time, but with Ryan out, the new guy was able to paint himself as somehow different than the Republican Party and his former boss and managed to win. Still, it was refreshing to see a union worker wear both his hard hat and his financial struggles with health care and more on his sleeve in this race, and we're hoping to hear more from Randy Bryce. Next door in Minnesota, a union member is going to be governor. Not just that, but Tim Waltz is a 20-year public school geography teacher and former congressman who emphasized education in his platform. Minnesota's seen plenty of education struggles over the years, so this will likely be a welcome development. And while I'm in Minnesota, shout out to St. Paul, too, which just passed a $15 an hour minimum wage. Michigan and Illinois also got rid of their Republican anti-union governors. It was somewhat of a sweep across the Midwest there. And the end of Rick Snyder's career had already come in Michigan, but Gretchen Whitmer's success marks a change for the state, which had become the so-called right-to-work state under Snyder, and saw repeated attacks on union rights, including the imposition of emergency managers, who, among other things, had the power to unilaterally void union contracts. In Illinois, Bruce Rauner, best known to a national audience perhaps as the force behind the Janus case, lost to another billionaire, J.B. Pritzker. It's hard to say what to hope for from Pritzker, but he did win with union support, so, well, it's not like we aren't used to Democrats shanking unions in the back, but we'll see. In any case... In the South, labor organizations worked hard for Andrew Gillum in Florida and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. We will put a link at the website to a lovely New York Times piece about the work that domestic workers did for Abrams in Georgia in particular by the incredible Tara Hunter, whose historical work on domestic workers is something you all should read. Both of those races are still up in the air, with ballots being counted and a runoff possible in Georgia. And both of them, if they go in one direction, would put pro-worker African-American Democrats in charge of big southern states that have seen voter suppression reach crisis levels in, well, this election. And finally, the biggest story of the night might not sound like a labor story at all, but the passage of Florida's ballot initiative to re-enfranchise the formerly incarcerated will bring 1.4 million working class people the right to vote once again, and that is a big deal for all of us. Oh, and new Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib spent their first days on the job at a protest in Nancy Pelosi's office over climate change and calling for a Green New Deal. So we will be keeping a close eye on them, as well as on Minnesota's Ilhan Omar, Massachusetts's Ayanna Presley, and a few other new members of the House. There were some disappointments, however. In Massachusetts, voters shot down a major referendum to improve working conditions for the state's nursing workforce. For many years, the Nurses Union, the Massachusetts Nurses Association, has been pushing for regulations to control the workload of nurses, and they pushed a ballot referendum this year for mandatory nurse-to-patient staffing ratios. That policy, which has already been tested successfully in California, would have helped nurses distribute the care workload more efficiently, and such staffing roles have been linked in numerous studies to both improve patient outcomes and improve job quality. 
but the opposition campaign led by hospital executives managed to persuade voters that a better nurse-to-patient ratio in their hospitals would be overly costly, it wouldn't really benefit them in terms of their health, and it might somehow even lead to worse care. They even warned of stiff cuts to other services that would be needed to pay for mandates. The nurses' union pointed out that the law actually had built-in safeguards to prevent funds from being drained from other services or creating service staff shortages. Hospitals would be required to comply with the staffing mandates without reducing the level of nursing, service, maintenance, clerical, professional, and other staff. It was a guarantee that was supported by the Union for Non-Nursing Support Staff, SEIU 1199. But even with solidarity from other unions and broad public support in general for nurses, public opinion swung to the business side of the argument thanks to a campaign that outspent the nurses' outreach campaign by more than two to one. But the common sense case for regulated staff ratios is both intuitive and backed by science. A recent peer-reviewed study revealed that, quote, improvements within hospitals and work environments, nurse staffing, and educational composition of nurses coincide with improvements in quality of care and patient safety. Unfortunately, what's good for nurses and patients is often bad for corporations, and in the end, the business argument against the nurse staffing referendum ended up tipping the scales on election day. I spoke with Linda Eichen, a professor of nursing at University of Pennsylvania, who has studied the impact of staffing ratios around the world, and she talked about what staffing ratios can bring to a workforce and to the state of hospital care nationwide. The hospitals that had better staffed hospitals with good work environments actually returned lower mortality for the same or a lower cost. And they did that by sending 40% fewer patients to the ICU because they had enough nurses on the general surgery and the general medical units to provide really great care with good outcomes without sending patients to the ICUs. So that's the kind of cost trade-off you're showing. And, you know, 40% fewer admissions to ICU is millions and millions of dollars of savings. We've been doing research around the world, and now as a result of our research, Wales in the UK has adopted mandated ratios Ireland has adopted ratios, and two states in Australia, including very recently the large state of Queensland, has adopted ratios right off of our pen research. So certainly other government jurisdictions are doing so. But then we come back to the you know, U.S. I guess preference for voluntary, quality-driven kind of activities, and in that regard, there's certainly other ways uh, to potentially incentivize improvements in nurse staffing besides mandating it. And so maybe Massachusetts will go on to consider some of those options. One of them they've uh, tried on a sort of voluntary basis, is my understanding. Uh, with the Massachusetts Hospital Association trying to sort of fend off this legislation by uh, requesting the hospitals to voluntarily post what their ratios are. I haven't personally studied that and don't know how that turned out, but other states have mandated public reporting. That was Linda Eichen, a professor of nursing at University of Pennsylvania. 
Amazon's national contest to see who would give it the most tax breaks in order to win a new headquarters and our long national nightmare are both over. But the nightmare is just beginning in New York and Washington, D.C., where the Amazon HQ2 is going to be split up and located. Yes, there are two HQ2s. Don't even ask me how this works. Here in New York, we got treated to the grotesque spectacle of our mayor and governor, who normally can't stand each other, standing together to grin and tell us how great it was going to be that Amazon's headquarters was going to be next to the country's largest public housing complex. Yes, Bill de Blasio said that. The giveaways are one thing. Taxpayer money ends up, as economist Mark Price commented, being given out over decades, taking away from education, transportation, and other budgets for years to come, slowly bleeding out the budget and winding up justifying more austerity, which companies like Amazon in turn use as justification for yet more privatization. It is the circular logic of neoliberalism. I proposed an alternative over at the outline, nationalize Amazon. But in any case, we should remember that no matter how many jobs are promised and how many opportunities these companies say they'll give to the working class residents of these neighborhoods they land in, these deals take money out of working people's pockets and left-leaning groups and electeds, including DSA members Lee Carter in Virginia and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, have already vowed to fight it. In fact, one New York lawmaker, State Assemblyman Ron Kim, has proposed a bill that would reject subsidies to Amazon and instead spend that money for giving student debt, calling it a better prospect for economic stimulus. At the outline, I wrote, quote, somewhere in the past few decades, we, and by we, I mean the two political parties that inexplicably run America, swallowed the propaganda line that companies create jobs as some sort of gift to the local community out of the beneficence of their shriveled little hearts, rather than because capitalism doesn't work without workers. You don't even have to read all of Das Kapital to understand this basic point. Just consider that if none of the underpaid workers who don't get bathroom breaks showed up at the Amazon distribution center one day, none of your Amazon Prime packages would make it to your doorstep. These workers aren't charity cases. They are the source of Amazon's value, which is about a trillion dollars, give or take a few tax breaks. The development of this belief has gone hand in hand with the belief that the government cannot just directly create jobs. Yet it wasn't that long ago that the same cities now tripping over themselves to give handouts to Amazon did plenty of direct job creation. Remember Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry, who spent public money hiring young people at the dawn of the Reagan era. And in the 1960s and 1970s, New York had, according to historian Kim Phillips Fine, a rich range of social services, ones that made possible a uniquely democratic urban culture. The city had public hospitals, a free public university system, even public daycare. The shards of the system can be seen in our failing subways, public crumbling housing complexes. Indeed, it's likely that Bezos chose New York and D.C. not because they gave him the most money, in fact, other cities offered more, but because those cities do have the remains of public infrastructure and are the seats of capital and government, respectively. Giving money to Amazon isn't going to rebuild public hospitals, pay for city university professors, or fix public housing. But the government can, in fact, just do those things itself. There will be links to this and more at the Descent website. organized labor put a face on the attacks it's faced over the last eight years in the United States, that face might just be that of Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. But after surviving a recall election and being re-elected once more after that, Walker did in fact lose this time around to a career educator, Tony Evers, the current superintendent of public education in Wisconsin and a former teacher and principal. 
It's fitting that a teacher beat Scott Walker since it was their unions that took the brunt of his hit. But it was graduate student employees at the University of Wisconsin who started the fight against Walker back in 2011, kicking off the Capitol occupation in response to Walker's Act 10, which stripped public sector unions of collective bargaining rights. And to talk about Walker's loss, the history of his battle against the unions, and what happens now, we have a member and former co-president of the Teaching Assistance Association, Eleni Shermer, who is completing her PhD in Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and who is working on a piece on the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association for a future issue of dissent. So, ding dong, Scott Walker is gone. Um, and we're going to take you all the way back in time to talk about this. But first, tell me what it feels like to know that Scott Walker is finally no longer going to be Wisconsin's governor. Oh, my God. It's like I went to bed the night of the elections pretty well. I wo- the, the morning of the midterms, I just had to say a little mantra to myself of like he's probably gonna win again and that's okay (laughs) we've been here before he hasn't broken us totally yet we're gonna get through it once once more Mm -hmm. and as the vote started coming in on Tuesday evening I was still kind of holding on to that and maybe around like eight or nine o'clock at night I allowed myself to get very cautiously hopeful that Evers might actually have a chance and I was just gripped to just couldn't break my eyes away from from watching the the votes come in. But then I don't know how close you all were following the results the night of of the election, but it got pretty close yeah. around 11 o'clock. I finally had to call it a night and I went to bed thinking like, it's not going to look good. I'm, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning with Governor Walker again. But much to my delight, when I woke up the next morning and saw that Evers had actually managed to pull through with a, a win, it was... Um, I don't know how to describe the relief, like better than Christmas, like just (laughs) (laughs) like, you know, okay, we have a chance, not, we have a chance to, to push this rock off of us. We might be able to kind of pull ourselves together and get, get out of this total mess. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. So we asked you to be our guest because we want to go back to the beginning. And obviously the TAA was instrumental in kicking off the protests in 2011 that really changed the political narrative. I know that sometimes cannot be a terribly comforting way to phrase things, but nevertheless really did sort of change the entire narrative of the post-crisis moment. So take us back to the beginning, to like those first protests in the Capitol after the introduction of Act 10. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's really, for me personally, it was just such an intense period of time. I mean, I had just started graduate school at UW-Madison. My dad is a state employee. My mom works for the school district. So it was all quite personal, what was what was happening. So it was like not just a sort of big picture, holy cow, the balance of forces is changing, but just like is my dad going to have a job in a year from now? So it was, it was very intimate. So that was what it was like for me personally. I think for a lot of people who were in the Capitol and, and even for folks in, in the TAA, I think one thing that's really important about this story is just, just to, just a quick refresh is that really, although 2011 is sort of, we, we talk about this as sort of the start when this sort of like Walker broke broke the unions in Wisconsin, but I right. do think it's really important to remember that the story has roots much earlier in, you know, at least until 2008 in the financial 
crisis hit Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, Wisconsin was had a Democratic governor and Democrats controlled the assembly. And under a Democratic regime, there was still a pretty austere response to the financial crisis. Governor Doyle, the, the previous Democratic governor, had imposed his own um, cost controls on workers and his own pledges to cut the public workforce. And also when Walker came into power, the Democratic-controlled assembly had failed to approve the state workers' contract, which hadn't been approved since something like 2009. So we were already in a bad place when Walker came into power. And the union, sort of capital U, union leadership had not necessarily done a lot to fight for workers' rights. And it was, you know, this this very much the common sense that uh, sort of concession-based bargaining, like workers should have to kind of figure out what they're also, which fingers and toes they're going to chop off to make sure to keep the, the the boss's budget intact. So when Walker came into office, he was, uh, you know, a sworn opponent of workers, and we were already in a bad position. And when Act 10 was proposed, I think it came out on a Friday afternoon in February. Mm-hmm. The TAA, I think, got a, a, a copy of it, and other unions had received copies of this bill. And a lot of folks got calls over the weekend saying, "Whoa, this is bad. This is a no. This is going to be really bad. This bill is going to like really just gut what unions can do in the state." We knew Walker wasn't going to be a friend for us, but none of us had any idea that it was going to be this bad. And as it turned out, the TA had already organized a protest. We were anticipating some funding cuts for the university. So we were already pro- we had planned a protest for what was to be Valentine's Day. And um, uh, so fortunately, we already had like, uh, you know, a bunch of picket signs already made up. And as soon as we found out about this bill, we just kind of quickly changed the order of operations. Instead of going to place A, we went to we shifted course and all went to the Capitol um, along with MTI, the Madison Teachers Union, and some other teacher locals around the state. But I think the big, really like strategic tactical thing that the TAA did was that um, we shifted from just picketing and protesting this bill to occupying the Capitol building. And that proved to be a really, really um, important strategic move. So there were public hearings on the bill, and there was a state law in place that the bill couldn't be voted upon until all the public had a chance to to say their bit on the bill. So we organized people to test that, use their two minutes to testify day and night um, to essentially stall the, the vote from taking place. Mm-hmm. And that two-week period that formed when we occupied the Capitol was really important for sort of generating a lot of energy um, you know, I think it's, we spanned, I, I believe two different Saturdays over that two weeks. And on those Saturdays, people came from all over the state, all over the country to, to join these marches in a freezing cold Wisconsin winter, yeah. walking around the square, 50,000 people, um, chanting, you know, this is what democracy looked like and kill the bill. Um, and those two weeks were really, really important for actually beginning to understand <laughs> what, what was happening at that time because it was it was just it was so out of the blue that people were really taken aback and during those two weeks i think people began to understand a little bit more that what gutting unions power would do not just to unions but to 
the budgets that Governor Walker would then be empowered to pass without having to abide uh, labor contracts. Um, So it also allowed the sort of our analysis to broaden from just what workers were losing to what the state infrastructure was going to get gutted. And and that also became, I think, really important. And, and And in some ways, I wish it had lasted longer so that we could have continued to develop that. Um, it became the very dramatic moment of it all was when the 14 senators decided to flee the state. This is going to be a great movie, by the way, when it all comes <laughs> out. And, I, and I, I do have casting ideas. Oh, yes. Um, but the, when the, the 14 Democratic senators fled the state and making it so that there was not quorum, so the Republicans couldn't vote to, to just um, smash through their bill. And then they finally realized that they could just sort of break apart the fiscal um, parts of the, the bill from the mm-hmm. non-fiscal parts. They did not ha- need to have quorum anymore when, once they realized that they could sort of split apart the bill. Yeah. And, you know, almost overnight when the bill was passed, the capital just sort of drained out. Um, and what had been a place filled with pizza boxes and pillows and you know, children's play areas and drum circles and Rosa Luxemburg study groups, just kind of everybody just sort of left. Um, And it's really hard to capture what that moment felt like. Um, But that was definitely that deflation sort of was the mood for the past 10 years, I think, or let's say eight years in, in Wisconsin since then. So as you struggled to sort of get out of that period of deflation, um, can you talk about how the the unions, you know, perhaps led by some of the education unions, um, ended up sort of rebuilding and and sort of reorienting their campaign, um, you know, after um, in the aftermath? And yeah. how did you reach out to other aspects of the labor movement, um, especially private sector unions, and, and build that solidarity? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, you know, the private sector unions, a lot of private sector unions had really already been um, pretty well stomped on in by, you know, in 2007 and 2008, the sort of Great Recession, quote unquote, gave a lot of private firms in Wisconsin the new latitude to cut union contracts and benefits for the private sector. So in some ways, there was quite a bit of mutual understanding among public sector employees and private sector employees to, to a large degree, to the extent that private sector employees were unionized in Wisconsin. What ended up happening was that the big sort of movement, I don't think you can really, the big mobilization that occurred post Act 10 was a demand to recall Governor Walker. And this was largely led by the the Democratic Party in the state and a number of the labor bureaucrats. And there was a lot of energy behind that demand. I remember being in the Capitol the first day or second day that we had found out and already petitions were circulating just immediately. It, it was a sense of that Walker needed to be recalled. And so it made sense that that it made sense to a, to a point that that became part of the political program that followed. And I think that provided a bit of suturing among different groups um, to mobilize against Walker. The problem, of course, was that recall is a, is a, pretty thin political demand and it leaves a lot to be imagined and determined about 
what people want instead of Walker. Um, and that was the part where, where Wisconsin, I think where we really tripped and fell. Um, the Democratic Party, for example, offered very little leadership. None of the, the major candidates that emerged pledged to even undo Act 10. It became a major point of debate within the TAA whether or not we would mobilize members and resources to endorse the the Democratic candidate in the recall election. There was a very controversial decision to adopt a platform in which the TAA would make political endorsements based on a set of political criteria. And chief of that criteria is that we will only endorse candidates who have shown that they have a developed program to support workers and 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 unions um, and working class interests. And that proved to be a, well, two things. One, a pretty high bar in the field of of politics in 2011 in Wisconsin, there was really no candidate that could no, no takers, that. really. Yeah, no takers, and that it was perceived to be such a high bar created a lot of division among what's called the very broad left. There was a big sense of sort of now's not the time to be politically pure. We just need to get Walker out. It doesn't matter who comes in next. Um, was sort of the dominant phrasing. That was a, the way I think most people around the state saw the issue. And I think the TA definitely was a, a loan <laughs> in issuing that demand. But I'm, I'm really, that was, for me, one of the most important tactical decisions that, that we made. And it's very empowering to say, you know, we're not going to just go out for anybody or anything. We have a set of principles that we're operating on and and... Unfortunately, that alienated us from the, the rest of the labor movement who just kind of got jumped, jumped into the recall program. In terms of the, the next steps after that, um, what was it about Walker then that then sort of made this a national issue? And, and I guess beyond the recall, I mean, what kind of resonance did that have for national politics um, in terms of sort of the, the, um, the right wing this really reactionary wave that's really come down hard on labor, you know, sure. not yeah. just Wisconsin. And then, you know, how did you continue on after that that recall? Yeah, I mean, I think that's just it is that there really wasn't anything unique about Wisconsin that this, you know, within months we saw very similar programs in Ohio and Michigan um, and really wonderful investigative reporting done to show how Walker himself wasn't a particularly unique author of his own ideas, that he had been heavily influenced by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, which, of course, makes a, its point to establish a sort of a national network of right-wing policy ideas and programs. So it really wasn't unique. And, and afterwards, some of us would, would talk to people and would say, you know, we're from Wisconsin. We've what's happened to us is going to happen to you. So we we kind of felt like we were walking around like we were from the future. This is the program that's coming to other states, and and um, I think there were a lot of people that did see this as a sort of a program unique to Walker. So it became sort of our work after. Act 10 passed to just continue to draw out sort of what austerity is and how it does, how, how it works. One of the big things that Act 10 did in Wisconsin is that it just sort of enabled 
uh, Walker to make even bigger budget cuts than he had been able to do previously. So that became sort of part of the program of just sort of drawing, saying public institutions that people believe in are not getting resourced the way that they should yeah. because of political choices, not because of really a, a financial reality. And I think that's where that, I think just kind of continuing to hammer that message home, especially I think education became sort of like this touchstone because the he, Walker in 2011, when he passed Act 10, it enabled him to pass the 2011-2013 budget, right. which made at that point in time the biggest cuts to education that the state had ever seen. It was only seconded by the budget that came in 2013, which made even bigger cuts. And at some point, you just can't run schools without money. And, and you know, what we've seen in Wisconsin is teachers leave the state and they they cannot survive the bad pay and the, the poor treatment and they leave. And that's discouraging. And at some point, people just have had enough of that. I was very interested in 2016. There was a number of referenda around the state, local mm-hmm. referenda that showed really like skyrocketing support for public school funding. So districts voted to tax themselves higher to increase funding for their public schools. And I think it was sort of that little kernel there that people actually do want functioning public schools. They want um, teachers that will stay for, you know, from when child A, you know, it's nice to have some continuity of teaching staff that's important for families and for students um, in addition to like good for a good union policy for teachers. And I think that was the flip that happened that we, that we saw last week is that people sort of wanted to choose a different way of, of making sure that we had a public education education system in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. It's interesting because you talk about, you know, this did get sort of personalized in Walker and that sort of comes back to the problem with the recall, right? right. Is that you got people who were unwilling to sort of run on a broad pro worker platform, even though right. it was only down to unions that there was a recall happening at all. Right. Whereas next door in Ohio, they were able to put the bill on the ballot and overturn it with like a massive, massive amount of votes. They won that easily. And there's something about that, about the sort of question of of personalizing and sort of drawing the narrow partisan line between Democrats and Republicans, between, you know, whoever, Tom Barrett and Walker (laughs) that feels like a lesson we still haven't quite learned after 2018. I totally agree. I totally agree. It becomes about sort of, right, a particular politician or maybe even a particular organization rather than a sense of like a really broad unified movement that's for, you know, uh, a defense of all kinds of working people. On that sort of, uh, you know, stay in your lane argument, um, (laughs) in general, what do you think about the way unions in Wisconsin and perhaps beyond there, um, particularly public unions, have balanced the priorities of of engaging in political advocacy and and even electoral politics and also the priority of of focusing on grassroots organizing, um, mobilizing members and dealing with just, you know, workplace and basic equity issues, um, you know, especially um, in areas where, where there is no collective bargaining. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really sort of the whole the whole puzzle, I think, in some ways is that is is that right there of what is it that unions what is it? Where do unions get their power from? Did they get it from um, from really sort of deep, thick engagement member to member that kind of like really internal focus or do they get it from looking out and trying to secure institutional power through legal structures and we have a labor history in this country that I think by and large has prioritized the latter over the former that we it's a you know we have labor laws labor history is really a labor law history less a labor movement history and the the sort of the holy grail of collective bargaining is part of what's enabled that so to watch in Wisconsin to have to lose that has been an identity crisis for sure for for labor unions. But I think a lot of us think that it's it's presented us with some opportunities as well that we have to get to more comfortable with the former area of really building that organizing model of a member based organization rather than a an association that's protected by laws. You know, we used to say in the TA, like after Act 10, like, well, it's the wild, wild west now. We we can do what we want out here. There's no one telling us what to do anymore because the, the TAA was one of the unions that chose not to recertify. So just as a um, quick recap, one of the big changes that Act 10 imposed on unions was that it demanded each union in the state recertify annually. And that proved to be, that's a, that was a, proved to be a, a pretty big task in and of itself because it the recertification process entailed that every union had to have a majority of eligible members in the bargaining unit, right. which would be the akin to having Governor Walker for his ordinary four-year term every year, instead of being elected in one year and then go up for election four years later, have to get a majority of voters in the state of Wisconsin to approve of not just people who show up to vote, but of all eligible voters to approve his uh, candidacy every year. If he would have imposed the recertification laws on his own administration, there's no way he would have survived. But what it meant for a lot of unions is that most of their work went into making sure they would survive the recertification election year to year rather than advancing other programs. It just takes a tremendous amount of work. So the TA decided it wasn't worth it for us that we would prefer not to be recertified. And, you know, I think there's been costs and benefits to that, but it did allow us to sort of sit back in our chairs and say, well, it's a wild, wild west now, what are we going to do? And I think that was, that's been good for, that's been good for us in the TAA. And I, and I think, I suspect there's a lot of my fellow union brothers and sisters around the state would say that they too have grown a lot as, as a labor movement absent um, this protection of labor law. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And we talked not that long ago with some of the folks from the Milwaukee Teachers Education Association who sort of said the same thing, like, I want collective bargaining back, but not the way it was. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit. Um, you study the Milwaukee teachers um, and also talk about what you as a TAA did differently without collective bargaining. And then this example that you've seen in Milwaukee of what the teachers have been able to do and they have recertified, but like what they've been able to do differently since Act 10. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's sort of the fun part is that it just, it forces conversation. It says unions are unions because the people in the union have decided to be a union. It's like uh, probably what every sort of 
low grade couples therapist will tell to a couple to say like you're in a relationship because you choose to be in this relationship and every day you choose to be in this relationship and that's what makes it work and that's a bit the uh <laughs> the thing the, the sort of the therapy lesson that was all of us unionists got for free from governor walker um and so in the TAA, it forced us to get into touch in touch with our members more. We in 2014 and 2015 was when there was a series of police murders of black men in Madison and Milwaukee. Right. Uh, Tony Robinson in Madison and Dontre Hamilton in Milwaukee, and so the TAA really stepped up to to sort of our our members were upset and pissed about that, and so we sort of stepped up a, a racial justice campaign. Um, and I think if we had been only concerned with our particular contract, that would never have come to the center of action um, because we don't get to, you know, our contract unfortunately doesn't have anything to say about the Madison Police Department or the Milwaukee Police Department. But when we are not sort of stuck to the, con you know, when we can sort of step back from the contract, we're able to look at these like larger political issues that do affect the political communities that we belong to. And I think a really, really similar program has happened in Milwaukee, too. I mean, the, the Milwaukee teachers have done some really great mobilizations with some of the Black Lives Matter activists in Milwaukee. And I know that it's cost them some members who have are pissed that the union is taking that stance to really foreground racial justice into the center of what a teacher's union, especially a teacher's union in Milwaukee, which... Milwaukee is the most racially segregated school district in the country. And because of that racial segregation is part of the story of why it became the, also the nation's first voucher school. So I think the Milwaukee Teachers Union has had to really sort of study those issues very closely and begin to see them not as sort of outside of the purview of labor's interest, but quite intimate to, to, to the teachers and teachers unions interests and uh, I think that's an exciting path forward. I think there's a lot, a lot of ground yet that we still get to get to discover. So we couldn't let you go in our post midterm show without asking for the perfunctory hot take. So um, after you know this small uh, blue ripple, and um, you know, of course, with the outcomes in um, in Wisconsin, uh, do you have any ideas about? moving forward, uh, specifically in this political context, now that Democrats are in control of the House and there might be a segue there for a little bit more policy-wise um, uh, on the national level? My hot take is like the midterms were important in that they were, gave people just a little bit of hope. Like in Wisconsin, that feeling of like, oh yeah, the rock maybe isn't out of my way, but it's not on my chest right now. And I think that's maybe the function of the midterms of like, okay, it, hopefully it gives people just enough hope to keep kicking it into gear and drawing out these bigger political and economic lessons that we are faced with. And like, it's not time to quit. It's like the work is just starting. Yeah. Are you, are you optimistic about, um, about Evers? Um, and, and sort of the, you know, I mean, of course, you know, any, anything post walkers is, uh, it's gotta be positive. But yeah. But what do we think of comparison, so. <laughs> I'm optimistic about Evers. I think he's going to have a lot of work ahead of him. He doesn't have a lot of friends in the state assembly. And in fact, between 
the day or two days after uh, Walker conceded, the Republicans in charge of the state assembly sort of have vowed their program to strip the governorship, not just to enact, not just to push through their particular agendas between now and January, but to actually change the powers of what the governor in Wisconsin will be able to do. So who knows? We'll see how successful they are with that. But regardless, I think Evers is going to be more open to the demands of workers than Walker would be at all. And I think the question you know, just as the work would have been had Walker been election elected is like, what are we going to push for to try to move forward? I think we maybe Evers is going to be more willing to to listen to to workers and to um, working class folks than Walker would be. But it's still going to be on us to to make demands and to organize. Um, so as you're looking towards sort of the broader landscape of, of labor politics, over the past year, we've seen major developments related to public sector labor, um, both positive and negative. So on the one hand, we've seen an unprecedented surge from uh, education unions and, and, and you know, teachers at the grassroots are leading the charge. Um, with these with these strikes across the country. And on the other hand, we also see more traditional forms of collective bargaining under siege under the specter of the Janus decision of the Supreme Court. Um, so I was wondering, you know, between those two, how are you feeling? Do you have any ideas about going forward, not just in Wisconsin post-Walker, but also, you know, Trump is still there um, and, and, you know, our... Our federal politics are what they are right now. On the one hand, it's easy to feel quite confused or have a sense of, I don't know, like a really schizophrenic sense of what's happening around, especially teachers union, but the labor movement in general in the U.S. right now. But I think those contradictions are to our advantage. I think we're in a moment right now of sort of re-understanding. I think I think unions and and labor unions are really having sort of a a re-understanding of their their power. The funny thing about unions is that there a lot of times people think that the common idea is that unions organize people, you know, that they use workers and you join a union and that you have this organization, but really, I mean really what's organizing people is the economy is organizing people. They're we live in a capitalist world that means that you got to get a job. So what unions are doing is they're trying to reorganize people. And the question that we have now is how are they going to do that? Will we reorganize ourselves with the labor law regime and try to sort of build up some kind of post-Janus labor law fireback system? Or will it be with a militant, mobilized set of unions like we've seen in the red states? And I think it's exciting that we're asking both of those questions at the same time, because I think they're sort of the, the twin powers of, of unions of this, this legal infrastructure that can open some spaces and close others, and also really sort of politically grounded activism that, that can expand what unions actually do and, and make it so that unions become a way to draw aim at this bigger economy that structures all of our lives, whether or not you're a member of the union. And that was Eleni Shermer talking about the rise and fall of Scott Walker. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg, I wish I'd written that. 
My pick for the week is admittedly a rather whimsical one, but since I am living in the shadow of New York's next techno Armageddon, I feel entitled to indulge by boosting Hamilton Nolan's rant in The Guardian. Dear Amazon, New York doesn't want you. Go find another city to destroy. Now, he's not literally calling on Amazon to find another city to destroy. After all, no city really deserves to be victimized by Amazon's hegemony, not even its current home base, Seattle. But it's a useful intervention against all the syrupy, sycophantic cheerleading we've witnessed over the past several weeks, as city after city has raced to curry the favor of the online retail giant. In the competition for HQ2, city and state lawmakers have promised everything from lavish tax breaks to all manner of deregulatory measures to entice the company to anoint it their new home. In the end, it got a lackluster split deal with two utterly predictable destinations, New York and the D.C. area. Nolan argues that, at the end of the day, all this useless fawning over the corporate behemoth is both sleazy and anti-democratic. He writes, This engineered airdrop of tech people threatens to destroy America's delicate distribution of unwanted wealthy demographic groups. Silicon Valley and Seattle get to deal with the techies. Los Angeles gets the Hollywood people. Washington gets the politics nerds. And New York gets finance types. We have each adapted to our own particular crosses to bear. Yes, millions of New Yorkers must share a city with tens of thousands of Wall Street people, but we have developed a complex system of cultural processes that mostly segregate them in easily avoidable areas in Manhattan and shunt vast numbers of them off to the Jersey suburbs at night. Forcing us to take in a flood of rich young tech people on top of this is like giving the flu to somebody who already has chronic but manageable diabetes. Unquote. In short, we've got enough gross people milling about our city every day. This subway car is full. There's another city right behind this one that should have ample room for the seedy manspread of Amazon's tech elite. Please leave us be. But of course, the subtext of all this nimbyism isn't just about our allergy to tech professionals. It's a challenge to the structural inequality that companies like Amazon perpetuate. As Silicon Valley spreads its evil tentacles across the U.S., everything it touches seems to turn toxic. We have to put an end to this trend either by ending Amazon altogether or by changing Amazon so that communities and the corporation can peacefully coexist and, who knows, even create a healthy symbiotic relationship. New York can start by setting some ground rules, building on our experience struggling to wrangle Uber into some modest framework of regulation for the ride-sharing monopoly. New York could avoid the mistakes of the past with meaningful oversight of Amazon's business and labor practices. This should include demands for concessions in the form of a community labor agreement, perhaps, that are on the same scale as a company's absurdly, undeservedly massive wealth. And on that point, Nolan argues, quote, No taxpayer money should go to subsidize one of the wealthiest companies on Earth. Amazon should cease union busting before it finds itself inundated by inflatable rats, and Jeff Bezos should pay to build housing for all 63,000 homeless people in New York, an expense that would not affect his lifestyle in the least. In return for these concessions, New York City residents will agree not to spit in your coffee or spray communist graffiti on your headquarters for the first month. Unquote. Nolan points out that, in contrast to Amazon's reputation for, quote, working its blue-collar and white-collar employees to the bone, New York City is a union town, unquote. 
I will go a step further and say that the city's Democrats owe it to the city's strong labor movement to challenge Amazon's longstanding anti-labor practices. They can do this by mandating pro-labor regulations and ensuring that the rights of workers to collectively bargain and organize for better working conditions at HQ2 are respected. The only way the public can compel Amazon to serve the public interest is to use its leverage to counter its ravenous impulse to exploit whatever corner of the internet, whatever tax loophole, and whatever workforce it lays its talons on around the world. New York, if it truly is as great a city as it says it is, shouldn't be reduced to begging for Amazon's crumbs. What better leverage do we have than the city itself? We're worth a lot more than any Fortune 500 company, and we won't let Amazon discount our real values. The media hype around the migrant caravan crossing Mexico has slowed since the election, though there are still troops at the border and shutdowns of lanes crossing into the U.S. But how should labor and the left think about such migrations? The good folks at Viewpoint, in an unsigned editorial titled The Border Crossing Us, offer us some thoughts on that front that are really worth considering as we soldier on into Trumplandia. The Democrats offered little in the way of vision on immigration or really much of anything else outside of a handful of candidates. And the left has been hand-wringing about foreign policy for a while, but not really thinking about how immigration is bound up in all of these questions, which are actually bound up in the question of what these days is domestic or economic that is not also international. They write, quote, if we step outside media narratives, think beyond the immediate electoral horizon, and train our sights on migrant organizing and solidarity, the basis for such a politics becomes demonstrably clearer. Just as the right strategy of white fear-mongering has highlighted new, more visible tactics among migrants in the form of the caravan, we propose to respond by centering migrant struggles, particularly from the perspective of migrant autonomy that was so well illustrated by the democratic decision-making of caravan members over their collective fate. With this perspective, it becomes evident that to consider class politics in the United States today means considering a working class whose composition crosses geographical boundaries and weaves together the exploited and the dispossessed from across a much broader region, end quote. The day without an immigrant strikes in 2006 were, they note, the largest work stoppages in U.S. history, initiated and organized entirely by migrant workers, and the reanimation of similar strikes under Trump, while smaller, is a meaningful action too often left outside of the narrative of the working class that still assumes that class's whiteness and national status. The piece also calls on us to recognize migrants not as invaders as in the racist Trumpist narrative, or as victims in the liberal pity-charity narrative, but as active agents making decisions in an unfriendly economic world. They write, quote, while economic and moral factors may be at play, migration as a contemporary phenomenon is paradigmatic of capitalism's relations of exploitation, and not only insofar as it illustrates the power of markets. Today's migration points to the multiple forms of exploitation and dispossession that define the contemporary working class. From the corporate land grabs, climate change, and state violence that make subsistence farming impossible, to the ways of the drug trade, finance, and the migration industry are able to extract surplus independently of the wage and in the process make life unlivable. 
Yet it also illustrates the active capacity of the working class to pose new forms of resistance to their subordination, or at least the conditions of their subordination, within and in relation to the labor process. In other words, workers may move to avoid specific working conditions, or to avoid being part of the industrial reserve army that otherwise sets the conditions of exploitation in a place like Honduras. End quote. The entire regime of illegal immigration, of course, structures the American labor market, as workers are kept precarious, driving wages and conditions ever downward. There's much more in the piece, including the circuit of migration deportation winding up in call centers abroad, deliberately created for deportees to take advantage of their English skills, and yet another call to understand migration as a part of class struggle, not simply an attempt to end run around it. It is a call in the end for a political response to migration, to borders, to the composition of the working class itself. It is a call for us to remember that the working class is never, has never been, contained in one nation or held back by a border. That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, to all of you for listening, to Descent for hosting us, and Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thanks especially to our lovely, beloved, belabored, sustaining members who give 3 or 5 or $10 a month to help us keep bringing you labor news, conversations, debates, and more of us saying arg. You can become one of them at DescentMagazine.org slash belabored membership, or you can also make a one-time donation to keep us going. You can also email us at belabored at DescentMagazine.org if you are interested in advertising with us. You can, as always, tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are an Amazon warehouse worker or programmer, candidate for office whose story we missed, Wisconsin teacher or other public worker, migrant or someone doing support work for the caravan, and tell us your story. We will be back in two weeks with much more. Thanks and solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>